Exploring the Word is brought to you by Reclaiming America for Christ and the Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. Is it really possible that God directed the path of our pilgrim forefathers? This is Pastor Paul Blair. Thank you for joining us for this Thanksgiving week edition of Exploring the Word. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 78. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7. And we'll preach a message today that's entitled, Seven Signs of God's Providence with the Pilgrims. We welcome you to the radio ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We invite you to join with us for today's Exploring the Word. Here's Pastor Paul Blair. This is our Thanksgiving message. We are reading from Psalm 78, a maskeel of Asaph. A psalm of instruction is what that is. And quite frankly, Psalm 78 is a history lesson. As Israel was commanded to remember who God was, remember what God did in their lives, and remember who they were as His people. Unfortunately, they did not follow His instruction. But we are going to launch from verse 1 through 7, so read along with me. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, mysterious, puzzling, difficult to understand. Basically, the difficulty is this. How can you as a people possibly forget me as a God when you consider everything I've done for you? Amen. Which we have heard. And known, and our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children. By the way, dads, it's our job to make sure our children are taught. Moms, dads, together, we are to teach our children the Bible. We are to show them the love of God because we are demonstrating it to them, not just lecturing them about it. We are also supposed to have oversight of their education. If they're not getting something in school or if they're getting something incorrect in school, it's up to you to make sure it's corrected. It's up to you to make sure that they are taught what truth is. This is an incredible week. You need to be teaching your kids about the faith of the pilgrims. We will not hide them from our children, showing them to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He established a testimony in Israel and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them, even the children which aren't born yet, which should be born, who should arise and declare to them to their children. So we've got multiple generations, one to the next, to the next, to the next, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. You know, when you're driving towards the Rocky Mountains at a distance, you see what appears to be one solid mass at first it looks like just one mountain it's not until you get closer that you can recognize that there are actually valleys in between those mountain peaks they're not visible from this direction in old testament prophecy that's called the mountain peaks of prophecy there were old testament truths that were shown to isaiah to zechariah to daniel to micah and others certain prophecies pertaining to christ Dying for our sins, Psalm 22, for example. 
Isaiah 53, for example. Daniel 9, 26, for example. Zechariah 9, 9, for example, is a great illustration because in Zechariah 9, 9, it says, Behold, Israel, here comes your king, humbly bringing salvation, riding on a colt, the foal of an ass. Yet also in the Scripture, we see in Isaiah 2, we see in Micah 4, we see in Joel 3, we see in in Zechariah 14, King Jesus showing up in power and glory, destroying the enemies of Israel and establishing a literal earthly kingdom where swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and there will, in fact, be peace on earth as the son of David, Yeshua HaMashiach, will actually rule and reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. All of these were apparent from the Old Testament prophets, but from their perspective, looking off into the future, they couldn't tell the difference that was between them. That caused then, and still causes today, confusion to the Jewish people. Well, which is correct? Jesus humbly bringing salvation or King Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives? Well, both are correct, ladies and gentlemen. What they couldn't see was this valley in between that we call the church age. In fact, in Jesus' own ministry early, he returned to his boyhood hometown of Nazareth walked into the synagogue, and of course there was much discussion about who this guy was. He was performing these miracles, which were irrefutable. And there was disagreement. Is this the Messiah? No, this couldn't possibly be the Messiah. This is the same boy that we watched grow up all these years. Jesus stood in the synagogue there, asked for the scroll of Isaiah to be brought to him. It says that he turned to a particular place and began to read. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. By the way, Isaiah 61 was where he was reading. And this is clearly a messianic prophecy, speaking of the Messiah. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And it says at this point, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to them, and said, today this is fulfilled right before your very eyes. Now the interesting thing is, is that as you can see in context, he stopped in mid-sentence. There wasn't even a period here. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all that mourn. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give them beauty in place of ashes. Of course, ashes a sign of suffering and humiliation and mourning. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise in place of the spirit of heaviness. That they might be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. And they shall build up the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations and shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. Ladies and gentlemen, this is bringing salvation, Zechariah 9, 9. This is the kingdom, Zechariah 14, 1. Jesus stopped in mid-sentence because this is what he came to accomplish in his first advent. This is what he will accomplish in his second advent. What rests in between is this hidden period of time called the church age. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus himself in the mystery parables of the kingdom identified that this period of time was in fact hidden. This church age right here from the birth of the church at Pentecost until the return of Christ and the rapture, this church age was hidden, Jesus said in his mystery parables of the kingdom. Paul reaffirmed in his letter to Ephesus in chapter 3 that this was hidden from the Old Testament prophets. Folks, in Acts 15, we have the account of a gathering of the church in Jerusalem discussing how the gospel of Jesus Christ had been opened up to the Gentiles. The results of this ministry was remarkable, and it was unarguable. It was evident that Israel as a nation had rejected her Messiah, but God's plans were not confounded. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Israel as a nation has been temporarily set aside, but God is not done with Israel. God will fulfill every promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob literally, not metaphorically. But in this dispensation, this dispensation that was hidden from the Old Testament prophets, as we just read in Matthew and in Ephesians, God is using another people, a people called out for his name, both Jew and Gentile, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. That's the group of people, the church, the ecclesia. This dispensation called the church age is described and outlined in Revelation 2 and 3. Now let me pause here just for a moment. I, you know, we will probably teach Revelation here maybe within the year or another year. You know, we're, we're emphasizing so heavily apologetics. We're going to do some other biblical worldview things on Sunday evenings. Probably will take us through the first half of the year. But those of you that were here at the time recognize Revelation is not a difficult book. It's called the unveiling for Pete's sake. It's not called the hidden. It's the unhidden. But the reason that most New Testament Christians can't begin to go there is, first of all, New Testament Christians don't know the first thing about Judaism. Because beginning with Augustine, we were taught that the Jews were the Christ killers. So abandon everything you know about Judaism. And also the New Testament church has abandoned the Old Testament. It's almost like those 39 books are just there for filler. Just to make sure you've got a thicker book to carry to church so you can get to Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Well, folks, out of 404 verses in the book of Revelation, there are over 800 direct quotes or references from the Old Testament prophets. You can't understand the book of Revelation unless you know the Old Testament prophets. And the Bible is the greatest commentary on the Bible. Virtually every term used in the book of Revelation is actually described and defined somewhere else in the Bible. It's not really that hard. You just have to take the time to study and look. In fact, Revelation is so bold that John said as he was dictating from the angel who was dictating on behalf of Jesus, who was dictating on behalf of the Father that this was the only book of the 66 that God would promise a special blessing if you studied it. And folks, I think that that special blessing is to understand that you have to go through the rest of the Bible. But it says very clearly that it's laid out chronologically. It's not difficult. Write the things past, things present, things to come. What you have seen, Revelation chapter 1. That which is, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. 
That which cometh metatauta, hereafter, Revelation 4.1, the catching up. And then from that point, you see yet future events. We're not teaching the book of Revelation, so let me stop right here before I wander on down this rabbit trail. But recognize that in the book of chapter 2 and 3, we see the church age described in detail. By the way, everybody that studies the book of Revelation wants to hop right over to Revelation chapter 6 and getting into all the judgments. Folks, the most important two chapters in Revelation for the church are chapters 2 and 3 because those are to the church. But you see seven specific churches addressed in this letter. Now, folks, there's a reason. First of all, there were seven churches that John was literally writing to. However... From a um, midrashic uh, and understanding of, of Hebrew eschatology, you also recognize that seven is God's number of completion. Seven days in a week, seven notes in a scale, seven colors in a rainbow. Seven describes this age that we are now in, the church age. But why these seven churches? Only two of them are mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Only Ephesus. And um, uh, what? Um, Sardis, I think, are the only two that are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. The other five aren't even mentioned. If this was such an important letter written to such important churches, then why wasn't John told to write it to the church of Jerusalem or to the church of Antioch or the church of Rome or, or, or the church of Philippi? All of those were mentioned many times throughout the New Testament, but they weren't. These seven churches were picked particularly because these seven churches also represented seven periods of time in this church age. Ephesus, the apostolic church, the church that lost its first love, roughly A.D. 33 to A.D. 100 with the death of the apostles. Smyrna, the crushed or persecuted church that emitted a beautiful fragrance when smashed, roughly from 100 to 313 A.D., In 313, you have Pergamos, the perverse marriage. We all know what perverse means. We all know what gamos means. Monogamy, polygamy, marriage. A perverse marriage is Pergamos. As with Constantine's supposed vision, we saw the church and state married together. And then out of that came the dark ages of Thyatira and Nicolaitanism, ruling over the people by the clerics. And then after that we saw the Great Reformation, the Church of Sardis, roughly 1400 to 1650. And then we saw, in my opinion, next to Smyrna, the greatest church, the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of Evangelism, the Church of the Open Door. By the way, only Smyrna and Philadelphia had nothing negative to say about them. And then Philadelphia is swallowed up by Laodicea, the lukewarm apostate church. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that we're right in here at this point in time. But the area that we are looking at where America was birthed and came into its heyday coincides there. Now let me ask you this question, and this is my thesis. Is it not possible that in this period of time that coincides prophetically with the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of the Open Door, the Church of Evangelism, that God would raise up a country that could house religious liberty and serve as a launch pad, serve as a shining light unto the rest of the world. I believe it is. Now, America is not perfect and never was. We are not the replacement for Israel. We are not the ten lost tribes. God did not lose any tribes. 
When the north and south split, the scripture very clearly says that those that wanted to stay faithful to Jehovah moved to the south. Those that wanted to apostatize moved from the north. So you had representatives of all 12 tribes living in the geographical area formerly known as Judah and Benjamin. This is America is not the kingdom of heaven on earth. In answer to the disciples' prayer that we talked about last week, Thy kingdom come, that will not happen until King Jesus actually rules and reigns in Jerusalem. That is a millennial prayer. We are not the kingdom of heaven, but we are a country that was founded by fundamental Christians and established on the principles and precepts of the Holy Scriptures. And Daniel too said this, as Daniel was given the meaning of the emperor's, Nebuchadnezzar's prayer. He praised God and said that it was God that removeth kings and sets up kings. Folks, I don't believe that America was simply an accident. I believe that we were intentional. And the evidence, I believe, is sufficient to prove it. Without God's hand of providence, we would not be here. My message today focuses on seven, what I believe, miracles that related to the pilgrims coming. Now first, we need to define what I mean by a miracle. The internet, which of course is the answer to every question in life, (laughs) defines a miracle as this, an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs, an extremely outstanding or unusual event, thing, or accomplishment. I think both of those are adequate. I think both of those suffice to describe what my intention here when I say miracles. Now, folks, you can consider the evidence that I'm going to present, and you'll come up with one of two conclusions. We were either very, very lucky, or God was obviously involved. Now, miracle number one, consider the faith that founded America. In 1588, literally 32 years before the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, Catholic Spain ruled the seas and was the dominant naval power in the world, and had been for nearly a century since Columbus had discovered the New World and had a leg up on everyone for development in the New World. We know that the West Indies, Mexico, South America, all were discovered, explored, and conquered by Catholic Spain, and consider the influence of Catholicism in those places even today. Now, in like manner, North America was given to Spain by Pope Alexander VI, So why aren't we all Spanish-speaking Catholics? Well, it's because of a miracle, ladies and gentlemen. In 1588, Queen Elizabeth, the Protestant daughter of Henry VIII, ruled England. Catholic Spain was intent on conquering England for the Pope to reconvert it from Protestantism back to Catholicism. How many of you are old enough to remember the Cold War? Remember big, bad Soviet Union? Well, that's like what Spain was in that day. They were the big, bad Spanish. And Spain sent a huge armada consisting of 130 ships, 1,000 cannon, 7,000 sailors, 18,000 Spanish infantry, plus an additional 30,000 soldiers from the Spanish Netherlands to invade the British Isles. No military force had ever been amassed like this before. This was called the Invincible Armada. Now, ladies and gentlemen, British Protestantism was doomed. But after a brilliant maneuver by the British Admiral Drake, the Invincible Armada cut anchor and drifted north through the English Channel, driven by winds, when, uh, get this, an unexpected storm at sea 
destroyed over half the fleet in one single event. Now, folks, in one storm, Britain remained Protestant. Catholic Spain relinquished its control of the Atlantic and dominance in the New World. And ultimately, it would be the pilgrims from England that would lead the way and establish the foundation of faith in America three decades later. What was it that Daniel said? It is God that sets up kings, and it is God that removes kings. Let me ask you, was that a fluke storm? Possibly. Were we really lucky? Maybe, but I don't think so. Folks, why is it that today you have people from South America and Mexico fleeing to the United States? Their land is just as fertile as our land here is. But America has been different. And the reason we're different is because of miracle number one that I just showed you on the screen. Miracle number two. Consider the book that guided the people. Now in England, I'd like to tell you that the Church of England began because of a great spiritual cause like Luther in Lutheranism or Calvin in Presbyterianism, but it did not. By 1533, the Reformation had swept much of Northern Europe, but England was still Catholic. However, King Henry VIII had been married to Catherine of Aragon, who was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, the same Ferdinand and Isabella that sent Columbus to the New World. And after 20 years plus of marriage, she had been unable to bear him a male heir to his throne. So he sought to annul the marriage. Isn't that convenient? After 20 years, I just want to annul it. We'll pretend it didn't happen. Well, the Pope said you can't do that. So King Henry VIII said, well, hang you. I'm going to start my own church and make myself the head of it. And he did. The Church of England. And he was the head of the Church of England. He was advised by his counselors to complete this separation from the Roman popery that they should translate the Bible from Latin into English. Well, folks, we are very happy that he did. Because once the Bible was translated into English, then Englishmen were able to read it for themselves. And they found out that much of the doctrine and dogmas of this Anglican church didn't line up with Scripture. So there was a group that attempted to work within the church to purify it. We call those the Puritans. But many of them grew frustrated with the futility of this. Men like John Robinson, who pastored the church in Leyden that would eventually board the Mayflower. This group believed that the official state church was too corrupt to be purified, and these separated from the established state church of England, and these separatists eventually boarded the Mayflower and came to the New World. Now understand what it means to be an established state church. Folks, and this is what the First Amendment deals with. Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of religion. Now, an established state church meant mandatory membership, mandatory attendance, and mandatory tithe. Non-membership was against the law. In America, we do not have a neutral history or a neutral government. Our government can certainly favor Christianity because we were established on Christianity. And it is absolute insanity when you've got Satanists coming out here wanting to put a Satan monument out on the Capitol lawn because we have a Ten Commandments monument. 
Folks, I can take you back and point to the heritage of biblical foundation for our country. We are this deep in it. That is not establishing a national church. What a national church would be, would be saying that everybody in America had to be part of the Church of America. And maybe that's the Baptist, or maybe it's the Methodist. You are required by law. Hey, Congress cannot do that. That's what King Henry had done. That's what King James had implemented. And that's what the pilgrims were suffering from. Puritans and separatists were both forbidden from holding public office. In fact, being a separatist was against the law. In many places, they were put in stocks in the public square. They were whipped. They were imprisoned. They were branded as heretics. They were even hung or quartered, which was a terrible way to die. In 1607, one congregation in Scrooby, England, led by Pastor Robinson, sought refuge by escaping to Holland. And for 11 years, they called Leyden their home, joining with other separatists who had fled from religious persecution. But Holland was not acceptable. They were an agrarian people. This didn't fit with them economically. And also they were concerned about the moral erosion of their children. So these pilgrims decided to leave Holland. And after much discussion and prayer, they decided it would be best to immigrate to America and live as a distinct body by themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, ours was the first and only civilization built by a people whose individual families had Bibles under their arms and every person knew well the will and wisdom of God's Word. Was that an accident? No. I believe it was by God's design. Miracles number three and four. I put these together. They never got to where they were going, but they went where they needed to go. This congregation from Leyden faced great challenges. Travel was not as we think of today. In fact, the word travel comes from the root word travail, and that is an accurate description. The pilgrims had received permission from the king for a settlement in Virginia. Now, by the way, this was a no-lose proposition for King James. It would expand his business interests in the New World, at the same time get rid of this troublesome group of separatists And if they died in the process, who cares? So it was a no-lose for him. Now, all of them couldn't go at once because the number of separatists was between four and 500. But this first group was prepared to sail. And they were sailing in two ships, the Speedwell, which they had purchased, and the Mayflower, which they had leased. This famous painting that you can see hangs in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. It depicts a prayer meeting on board the Speedwell led by Pastor Robinson as they were preparing to separate. Most likely they knew that they would never see each other ever again in this lifetime. Now they departed England only to have their trip delayed because the Speedwell began taking on water. Now your first thought is, wait a second, didn't these guys do it right? They're praying for God's blessing. They're not two weeks out from England and all of a sudden they're taking on water. They're going to sink. We thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word, and we look forward to being with you next time for the conclusion of this message, Seven Signs of God's Providence with the Pilgrims. Until next time, may God bless you. 
You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We hope that today's journey in God's Word has been a blessing to you. You can find more sermons and resources at our church's website, www.fairviewbaptistedmond.org or call 405-348-1745. Join us again each weekday for Exploring the Word from Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond.